0: Okay, welcome to You Talking with Greg. Uh, We have a repeat offender here, and my uh, fellow favorite metapsychologist, Dr. Zach Stein. Hey, Zach. Hey, Greg. It's good to be back. It's wonderful to have you back. And um, so uh, you've been doing a heck of a lot of cool things lately, uh, involved in the Consilience Project. One of the things I'd like to just, before we dive into that, um, I'd like to just check in with you about the whole uh, transformation metapsychology series. Um, maybe, uh, and see if you had any, obviously for people that generally watch this, the four people that watch this podcast probably know that we did a series <laughs> um, with John, a uh, six-part series on um, toward a metapsychology, true to human transformation. And uh, I really enjoyed that, man. I really wanted to tell you, thank, thank you, you
1: so much for that. And uh, it was a lot of fun. It was, it was a blast. That. And I think I expressed it when I was on with you guys, that you know, that was that was my wheelhouse years ago. I just talked six hours a day about human development and cognitive science, <laughs> and I hadn't done that for a while, so it was actually fun to just kind of drop back into, into that with you all, uh, and I learned a lot. Um, and I think it's a timely conversation, you know, given the confusion around teacherly authority and normativity and human development and other things. So I thought it was a powerful. Uh, set of things we did and then the STOA session was also a lot of fun so it was just good yeah, yeah man yeah no i was really
0: uh i mean for, you know for there's the development and transformation side and obviously my entire soul life is entangled in this idea of what is psychology uh and then is there an actual coherence to this concept um and i thought the three of us uh you know, we both embodied it at a participatory level. I thought there was an architecture there that was, could hold one of the most complicated concepts, human transformation, you know, a a, a mature growth to good and whatever that would be. Um, and uh, and it was a blast too. So uh, okay. uh, it was great, you know, so maybe there's a little seed some happening there in terms of uh, <laughs> those kinds of, uh, you know, maybe the Academy will drift in that direction. I don't know. Metapsychology.
1: <laughs> metapsychology is coming for everybody. Yeah,
0: metapsychology is coming. Twenty first century people, back half, mark my words.
1: <laughs> <laughs> good, good. I will. Uh, so I actually believe that, but <laughs> well, I mean, I think I mean, I think we express this with John, or uh, you know, it's almost inevitable if you dig, dig deep enough into any specific field earnestly, you'll pop out into some meta version of that field, you know, philosophy of biology. Um, uh, you know, Foundations of legal theory go deeply philosophical quickly, even though you started out just looking at precedence. <laughs> you know what I mean? So there's, there's a whole bunch of areas where if you would go deep enough. And so I think psychologists have will, you know, there's been a kind of like, as we talked about, the field itself kind of fragmented and people were staking their claims and founding journals and this fragmentation of the field eventually there will be an inevitable reintegration and a deepening. And so people will be kind of forced to go meta or whatever prefix you want to use, Totally. You know? so,
0: and the, to me though, the fundamental question is when you do that, is there some coherence to actually be acquired, you know? So um, I think it was Richard Rorty said, there's probably no unified theory of lawn tools. <laughs> okay? Right. okay. And I agree. And you know, that's a, that's a family resemblance class. But whether or not there's an ontological essence of the mental or whatever the reference would be, that to me has always been the question. And I think we're getting
1: closer to saying, yeah, maybe. So yeah, no, cool yeah. And it would make sense that we would, right? If it is well, the science that we've been making any progress, eventually we'll bump into reality <laughs> again, again and again and again. <laughs> and then yeah. we'll start to figure out, oh, there's like a deeper architecture here. And I think that the architecture of the mind, because they're quote unquote invisible, <laughs> Are harder to kind of bump into in some ways, or it's harder yep. to admit that you bumped into it. Um, mm-hmm. our physical realities—they're just—they're just there. You just you totally. if you're going to build a bridge, you pay attention to the physical realities. If you're going to build an educational system, what do you pay attention to—the economic and bureaucratic realities, or the yep. realities that exist in everyone's mind? Now you're into touchy, <laughs> <laughs> medical, <laughs> territory. So I think when we do get some overlapping consensus kind of consilient meta-psychology will be able to reform, uh, some of our most basic institutions. Right. That is
0: speaking of consilience. That is unless we drown in propaganda first. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) So, uh, you know, we, we certainly can rip off of that anytime, but I, I, one of the things I certainly wanted to touch in with you about, um, you know, uh you've you've written some unbelievably cool articles uh, or at least participated and i know the authorship and the consilience project is a particular way but um at some point i definitely want to get in there and dialogue and this may be a good time to do that um but um yeah i just first i wanted to say i was really moved uh, by the power and the depth and the and the, the message uh, of that and i think it's a So uh, part of the Consilience Project is to help a sort of a meta media view or whatever. I'm not sure. I can't remember exactly how it's framed uh, to afford us better sense making um, and then to understand the situation we're in. And in that regard, what the hell's going on with the information wars (laughs) and those kinds of things? Um, So, you know, that's a that's a wide open, uh, you know, arena for you to enter. And just uh, but, but the preface with, holy shit, man, you're doing brilliant, beautiful and important things. So. Thank you.
1: Yeah. The, the, consilience project has been a great opportunity to do uh, a bunch of stuff for all of the people involved. <clears throat> and, you know, in one sense, you can think of it as like a, a think tank that works on issues of civilization, uh, civilization collapse and existential risk. Um, and then with like a publishing arm, the consilience project, which kind of puts out really foundational, important aspects that the kind of the, the, Meeting of kind of of social theory, psychology, mm-hmm. political science, and things of that nature. <clears throat> so, in that context, yeah, I headed up a, a series of papers on propaganda, the nature, of, mm. the nature of propaganda, the nature of information warfare. Mm-hmm. And what was so interesting was that, as a psychologist and educator, I was able to slip right into this literature because, right, mostly what it's a literature of. Is the history of the use of psychology in the hmm. interest, in the interest of coercion? Like, there's a book just out a couple of months ago by Joel Dimsdale. It's called Dark Persuasion. Uh, oh. Something like Dark Persuasion: A History of Brainwashing from Pavlov to Social Media. Oh my God! It's oh, uh, yeah. Yale University Press. He's that he's like in the UC system, I think, and worked for the government <laughs> as a psychiatrist. Um, and that's just it's such it's a frightening book because he gets into the archival records of MK-Ultra <laughs> uh, and looks at the you know previously untranslated Russian stuff about Pavlov. MK-Ultra? Okay, you want to let people know what that MK is? MK-Ultra's uh, CIA-based or okay. <clears throat> intelligence-based mm-hmm. um, kind of answer to what we thought the Russians were doing mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of pioneering uh, forms of what Dimsdale calls dark persuasion. Right. Or brainwashing, quote, unquote, or what's sometimes called undue influence, which is the term that I prefer, which mm. is a term, uh, which is a legal term, basically means like you are so subject to the kind of information control, emotion control, behavior control of a larger mm-hmm. third party mm-hmm. that you really can't be held accountable for your mm. <laughs> actions in a court of law. Mm. So the right. kind of classic case we know. Of undue pers of uh, undue influences, like Patty Hearst, for example. Right, of course. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Right, where it's like, right. yeah, the, that's where she's kidnapped by these yeah. radical leftists uh-huh. um, and basically ends up robbing banks with them and killing people in their in their name. <laughs> totally. Uh, but of course, uh-huh. she was held in a closet and tortured and malnourished and sleep deprived, and all of the things that combine. And we can talk about that. Like, what are the environmental contexts? that makes psychological vulnerabilities appear, which allow people to basically manipulate you. And and to such an extent that it's hard for you to think straight and behave in a way that you feel is uh, of your own doing. And so Mm -hmm. this is like scary stuff. And the argument is that
0: actually, can I pause you there? I'll let uh, people may know this, but this is a really good lead. And I think you and I bridge a lot um, around this concept of justification. Okay. Uh, And, and certainly in this, um so the idea of justification uh, people in the sort of you have an interpretive system that propositionally based and what it's doing is is at a sort of uh, instrumental level it's creating systems of narration and justification that legitimize is and ought given your investments and your influence that's essentially the at a design sort of a, <laughs> a you know really objectified design level but that's a functional pretty good description okay so but the interesting thing that relates directly to what you're talking about is the, the default of the system is like, oh, well, we'll kind of bias it, sort of the most positive base rate you can justify to make yourself look good in a particular way. Okay, that that's sort of the baseline expectation if you just take the logic of it. And lo and behold, attribution theory finds essentially that's what people do, okay? But there are a subset of people that actually turn against the self in a particular way. They justify themselves as inadequate, ineffectual, uh, and then elevate and become dependent upon other people and then protect them. Okay. And, and interestingly, that was an, initially, that was sort of like I was struggling with that back in 1996. Um, and then I, the actual really light bulb moment of, of the hypothesis was I was, uh, went to, um, I was doing a psychiatric eval. Um, And a woman had made a suicide attempt Mm -hmm. Uh, and she presented with what's called an avoidant personality disorder. Okay. Which basically is a complete inferiority, self-attack. I am worthless. I'm ineffectual. She's an attractive woman, above average IQ. I'm unbelievably ugly. I'm unbelievably stupid, that kind of thing. Okay. Um, So you have all the system of justification that I am shrunken, you know? Um, And then the issue was, well, where did, what's her history? okay so she then has this classic uh history i mean classic from a psychiatric vantage point of an abusive alcoholic father okay and a timid mother um and she distinctly remembers her older brother having physical conflicts with her uh father and he would beat the shit out of him when he was like 13. okay and he would say to her why can't you be more like your obedient sister this is a very image okay and then I hear that, and of course, then, then the whole point is, is that actually this exception, the system of justification, is now that is diminishing the self is actually proving the rule, meaning that it emerges as a way to subvert the potential threat and then conform to the powers that be, even as it subjugates the self to a pretty critical sense. So when we think about how somebody through a particular threat put in a context of undue influence exactly. might even convince themselves that this is okay. And this is the right thing to do. And I'll identify with my hostage takers or any other kind of forces and become agents of that. Actually, that's very consistent with how we might think people operate.
1: And yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, um, you know, those examples of what appear to be, <clears throat> kind of like strange or pathological adaptations of the personality system are actually uh, really understandable, reasonable adaptations of the personality system under certain contexts. And so the idea is that, yeah, there was um, evidence from early, starting with Pavlov, uh, that certain types of uh, conditions could actually undo prior conditioning (laughs) Mm. (laughs) uh, and allow for reconditioning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so starting there uh with innovations uh, stalin's regime and the show trials and a few other things there began an arms race between the major countries to innovate in techniques for wow. quote-unquote brainwashing the classic mm-hmm. examples were the americans taken hostage during the korean war and put in chinese re-education camps mm-hmm. these people were studied by margaret singer <clears throat> and, and robert j lifton mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh From there, they distilled this kind of complex set of structures that show the kind of architecture of a context of undue influence. Mm -hmm. And what I'm arguing in the final propaganda paper, which should be up this weekend, is basically that social media, Mm -hmm. uh, especially deep engagement with social media, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. looks structurally isomorphic to these contexts that psychologists had previously identified as enabling undue influence. And Uh it makes sense, like uh, the capturing of attention. Uh And so the TV captures your attention. Fine, but it doesn't capture your attention and then put you in a social context in which other people's attention are also on you. And so in the Chinese re-education camps, these Maoist camps as well, which Uh lived and studied, you had very complex, very long form, quote unquote, debates. where malnourished inmates Uh who had also been physically maltreated Uh were put in sitting in a circle with someone supervising the conversation and then for six, eight, ten hours at a time forced into complex debates about abstract ideological ideas and their own identities. Uh And more specifically, run through with what Lifton identified as thought-terminating cliches. Which were ways to basically manipulate the justification field in which the identity was being kind of rung through, right? uh, In such a way that you can simply uh, kind of stop the conversation from going in certain directions. So it's it's very, and so I write about this kind of pretty extensively. And so that similar thing happens in the context of social media, totally, uh, where there's a capture of attention, there's a hyper or hyper-stimulus kind of indu- is induced and in mm-hmm. that context you are kind of forced into public debate in which thought-terminating cliches run wild right um and so and it, in the internment camps <clears throat> the re-education camps and again lifton interviewed people coming out of them and it's worth noting that a handful of american soldiers chose to stay stay yeah yeah no i know chose that story yeah. it's very means- interesting right um and so when that happened the American government freaked out because they thought whoa like what have they d-? that's why they had liftft and study it and other people study it and eventually that's why MK Ultra and other things kickstarted because there was a sense that the Russians had figured something out or the Communists had some totally unusually <laughs> powerful techniques and let me give it an, uh, maybe an example see if this
0: fits so we can imagine a, a Skinner watching a rat in a box okay. And what he's doing there is just we can then manipulate the investment structure of the box, right, Mm -hmm. to cultivate the path of investment of that rat. All right. Now, from a unified theory perspective, there's a one up dimension field called the justification field, but it sits on an investment influence contingency structure. Mm -hmm. So if you have people then constructing the field and wondering where their mazes are of justification and creating, finding the edge points of blockage and guidance and structure, you basically have this kind of process of, of shifting people's what fears to be even at times their own, hey, this is free will, but the context is actually being shaped in such a way mm-hmm. that it's essentially predetermined by uh, an enormous mm-hmm. amount of other factors that the person's not aware of at all.
1: Exactly. And <clears throat> so in the field of nudging, which is the 21st century version of all this, <laughs> frankly, uh, and then we'll g- we get into that. Uh, this is called you know choice architecture. Right. So you create choice architectures. Um, which only make put certain things on the menu. Yep. Uh, you're not being coerced per se, but you are being basically paternalistically placed into a situation of limited choice where most of the thinking has been done for you. Uh, mm-hmm. And so the thought-terminating cliché serves that purpose in like a, right. in a in a discourse space where, as exactly as you're saying, the justification system is kind of nestled in this strategically constructed maze, which may or may not make sense. So in the re-education camps, as Lifton said, it was things like you know if you're arguing about like communism versus capitalism, mm-hmm. of course, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and so you as a soldier from the U.S., you know, who's not very well educated. In, right. political, in political theory, try to say, well, no, communists, you know, like they they don't value individualism. It's very important to be an individual. And then the leader and then other soldiers who've been there for six months, who know how to play the game, argue against you and say, well, that's just imperialistic thinking. And that that's phrase, crazy. imperialistic thinking, is a thought terminating cliche. And there's no way out of that in the discourse. Ah, right. Um, and so... <clears throat> months of that. And you realize that if you if you also say, you can't say anything that's imperialistic and start to label kind of appropriately the things that are imperialistic, uh, then you get rewarded with food or more sleep or other things. And, and so eventually through this reinforcement of adopting an illogical justification system, which Lifton ends up calling the language of non-thought. So you are socialized under duress into a language of non-thought huh. through reinforcement and then eventually you kind of forget who the hell you were and wow. like some of this work was eventually done by Margaret, Margaret Singer who studied these POWs looked at you know, religious cults uh-huh. which do very similar things where-
0: Do you know if Orwell, George Orwell had any of, is this prior or post Orwell because that sounds very Orwellian like 1984 in particular or
1: Yeah or no I mean and again these structure. techniques have been known for for a yeah, while. fair enough. And mm-hmm. and so my, and you know Orwell worked in uh, British intelligence and mm-hmm. uh, propaganda um, mm-hmm. agencies, mm-hmm. Um, uh, as did H.G. Wells and mm-hmm. and, and many others. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so there's a there's kind of a long history of that, and it and it it's, yeah, it's scary as hell. And then the deeper thing is that as communications technologies evolved there was always an attempt to apply these methods at larger scale through mm. communications technologies first radio mm-hmm. so if you look at hitler's propaganda which is kind of, mm. when you think of propaganda you think like nazi propaganda and of that's- course <laughs> They, they they really innovated. <laughs> they it. did. They, that's not wrong to think. <laughs> no, I mean, and, and part of the blitzkrieg, right, part of their, like, remarkably effective invasion strategy was preemptive propaganda. A lot of it radio-based, where you're broadcasting in uh, these hypnotizing kind of, like, broadcasts riddled through with these inescapably seductive, thought-terminating cliches and just... You're gonna lose. You're gonna lose. You're gonna lose. We're the most powerful. We're the most powerful. We're the most powerful. Just like endlessly pamphlets, hundreds of thousands of pamphlets dropped in, and and so this you know sense of well, we could find ways to exercise undue influence at scale. Wow. And so in 1986, um, huh. as the Berlin Wall was falling, basically or about to fall, uh, you had a television broadcast come out through. Uh, moscow like okay. on mm-hmm. russian national television and there was a hypnotist <laughs> and the russian state was attempting to use masses hypnosis through broadcast television to call the political oh my God. Uh, intrigue and so i cite this in the in the propaganda paper that will recently be published and so an advertisement of course is where in the united states a lot of those techniques ended up being applied mm. where mm-hmm. Radio, then television. When you look at television, there was an like MKUltra was part of this the use of screens and pre recorded information to induce undue influence. And uh-huh. so, like, you think think *Hawkwork Orange right? at the end of it, yep. like that put it in the public imagination uh-huh. and that there was a way that you could somehow be brainwashed by a screen. Now, it turns out you can be, but you have to be strapped to a chair and drugged for hours. Yeah. Normal. Normal TV use doesn't doesn't do that because it's easy to get away from your TV. (laughs) Now, here's where it gets interesting. It's not easy to get away from your cell phone. It's not. And so it gets to... I got mine here. (laughs) So it gets to a point where the kind of knowledge we had about how to exercise undue influence was seeking technologies that allowed it to scale. And various parties, not just governments, but also industry and advertising, uh, and then we get social media and social media actually creates really novel social uh-huh. realities like uh-huh. very novel social realities. Cause again, the uh-huh. TV you could easily get away from. Uh-huh. I watch TV most, basically it's just me and my TV. Uh-huh. No one really knows what I'm watching unless they're in the room with me. Yeah. And I'm certainly not yelling at the TV and being heard by other people watching the TV Christ. like thousands of miles away. Right. So uh-huh. There's something radically different, and it actually recreates and makes possible mm. um, through the heavy usage uh, basically conditions of undue influence. So what you have is a is a, like Facebook, for example, right? Is an attention captured business model, which makes money by selling advertisements. The more you look at the screen, the more money they make. So their mm. first move is to get you to just stay on screen. And so they use psychologists to keep you staying uh-huh. on screen. But so then once they know you're staying on screen, they're selling ads to your mind. So they capture yep, yep. your attention. And we, uh-huh. there's all kinds of work on that Tristan Harris in particular to show yep. uh-huh. the way they've made it addictive and the way they time, you know, like okay. if you haven't gotten any light, they'll like wait to give you likes until you're about to go off and then you'll get four likes and then you'll stay on longer. So they do that. Wow. You and then uh-huh. once you're there, they're surveilling you everywhere you've gone on the internet and everything you've looked at on Facebook. And they use that to profile you psychologically and basically make clear what you're afraid of, what you are attracted to, what you like and dislike in the semantic field of memes. And then they kind of offer your mind up to the highest bidder, for micro-targeted advertisements. So they basically kind of put you in a situation to be vulnerable to undue influence, right? You've been on for four hours. You've been scrolling, you've been arguing, you're under emotional duress. You haven't eaten, your sleep has been dysregulated because of too much screen use already. So you're underslept. you're malnourished. Now you're scrolling for four hours. You're in an emotional state. Facebook knows you're in an emotional state. It gives you a micro-targeted advertisement about a very charged political issue and it gives you an answer to that issue. And now it's part of your Holy identity. That's right, part of your identity. And so what you have is like a for-profit AI-based behavior control system that's affecting billions of people, uh, which is basically being leased out. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> they're they're renting, they're renting time with the brainwashing machine. If I can, that's how they're making their money. They're
0: yeah, no, it's, well, it's much. so interesting. I never thought about it this much, but by my intuition, I got on these things are fairly early. This is fucking toxic. <laughs> that's my, you know, I never really, and it's just interesting to me to hear that my intuition, you know, seemed to be pretty gone to something there, given yeah, that description. That's
1: pretty fucking scary. And it's, huh? it's two levels, right? It's toxic at the level of just simple identity. Excuse me. It's toxic at the level of just simple attention dysregulation. Just attention, just the pattern of addiction. But then it is something, and there's probably some other word that's different than toxic, which is the effect it has on the identity system. Because again, what it's dysregulating your attention in the interest of being able to put into your justification system and kind of value and desire matrix, some kind of content, right? It's not up to you what that content is. It's up to whoever has paid Facebook to wrap you into a situation of undue influence and i'm not even talking about uh bots and botnets and state actors and chat rooms flooded with you know uh cyborg armies of russian trolls which all exist which are all also in that same infinite scroll of you know basically hypnotic uh trance-like induction and so this sounds extreme and i'm but i'm not being hyperbolic like uh when you look at the history of the research that went into the backgrounds for what we've been talking about leading up through advertisement uh as dimsdale says in his book dark persuasion he's like how could governments and large corporations not research the use of social media as a means to exert undue influence um and so, so yeah, so I think that is where the propaganda series ends. It ends with this note mm-hmm. of warning saying, listen, we had for a very long time kind of a civil society and public sphere mm-hmm. where propaganda coexisted with other forms of communication and mm-hmm. education and experience. <laughs> yeah. And same with advertising. Like there was advertising, but there was a lot of your experience that wasn't subject to advertising.
0: Is there a difference between propaganda and education?
1: (laughs) (laughs) There is, Greg. (laughs) Like
0: a clear line? There's like a A very
1: clear line. Has anybody thought deeply about that? (laughs) Well, so I wrote about that in the second propaganda paper, in fact. Uh, Hey. And that's the key to it, right? That's (laughs) the key to it because many of the people who use Facebook to do micro-targeting, have the best intentions, (laughs) right? Like they uh, believe in a drug that a company has developed Uh in life. And so they want to find people who are vulnerable and sick. And so they can give them this drug, right? Right. So, um, uh, or again, you can get charities and other groups who all want to use the brainwashing machine to get you to mm-hmm. do the right thing. Yep. <laughs> uh, but it's important to understand that it doesn't matter what your intentions are mm-hmm. if you are engaging in coercion. Yep. Right. So this is an ethical issue about the difference between utilitarian ethics and what would be called a deontological ethic or even mm-hmm. a virtue mm-hmm. ethic. Right. right, And deontological ethics says, no, it's the structure of the action and the nature of the relationship between the two mm-hmm. parties. If you're <clears throat> treating someone as a means to an end, let's mm-hmm. say, rather than as an end in themselves, mm-hmm. or if you are not respecting their autonomy and educatability, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to utilitarian, I think of which would say something like, oh, it's in their best interest. Uh, right. We don't have time. So we're going to manipulate them to get them to do the right thing. Um, right. Coercively. living um, right
0: i'll just i'll make a point for people like i think we're underdeveloped in understanding moral philosophy uh, in general in our educational system this is my own opinion it'd be really good idea for us to actually think about morals <laughs> and what they are and value structures and ethical decisions um so for those of you that are like oh what is that <clears throat> at At a 101 level, um, there are three broad, at least, doorways in sort of Western thought into moral, ethical decision. You have Aristotle's virtue ethic position. You have a Kantian deontological position. uh, And then a utilitarian or consequentialist position. I think they're all interesting and worthwhile. Um, The consequentialist is, hey, cost-benefit. Uh, try to maximize benefit, in, in essence. Uh, and and it, it, they certainly you can zoom back very far, depending on the perspective. Uh, so you can certainly say, well, this is good in the short term, but it's not good in the long term. But that, that's basically it. The deontological is basically there are foundational principles of being uh, and to be the right way. It's a short way of saying sort of categorical imperatives as you use some Kantian language. And then the virtue ethics is ultimately one way to think about it. Is, is the, what is the ultimate good? Uh, for Aristotle, it's the eudaimonic endpoint, and then to cultivate means-ends relationships to be in right relationship to that, that eudaimonic endpoint. Um, all fascinating. I, I tend to orient toward virtue ethics myself, but um, those just some reflections for people to be thinking about some of that.
1: Yeah, totally. And it and it's not. I mean, it's not too much of a, much of a diversion because it is relevant because the the feeling people have when you're speaking about propaganda and undue influence is that it's unethical. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a strong <clears throat> intuition. So those three, the utilitarian, the deontological, and the virtue ethic, all three are essential. And in fact, when my view would be that when making a moral judgment, you want to factor all three, but you want to yep. understand how they relate to yep. one another. Agreed. Uh, that's kind of another. Right. That's, I didn't mean to go down that yeah, path, yeah, but I just in relationship. It's very important. It's important. framing us that yeah, That there's several ways in which uh, undue influence is unethical. <laughs> um, uh, you could argue that it actually doesn't maximize, even from a utilitarian perspective, the outcome. And this, I mean, not to get too grisly, but this gets into the debates about is torture actually useful or not? <laughs> like, right. even if you're just trying to get the information, can you really trust it? Because the dude will say anything because you're torturing, it, right? So, like, right. That's a very complex topic. But the point is that it's not even clear just on utilitarian grounds. Right. right. Coercing populations to do the right thing will work. It could mm-hmm. backfire. And some tough. of what we're seeing, even in contemporary propaganda around the pandemic, is that if you get, if you push too hard <laughs> with coercion and not enough education, you'll get a kickback, even if mm-hmm. you're in the right, but especially if you're kind of like fudging it a little. <laughs> right. <laughs> and totally. so I think the, uh, it's important to get that even from a utilitarian perspective. And then of course, from a deontological perspective, it's a no brainer that coercion is unethical. It violates one of the most basic principles of a deontological ethic, which is mentioned treating people as as autonomous ends in themselves, never to be manipulated, always to be reasoned with and fundamentally respected. Uh, And then from a virtue ethic, it's also I think clear that you're actually making it impossible for other people to do their own virtue ethic because you're right. implanting in their own personalities ideals to strive for, which are which they take up only under duress and uh, pressure. Um, and so also to be someone who's doing that, like how could you be someone who's totally. their job, their job is to coerce people. Right. right, to turn them into and So from all three perspectives. Mm-hmm. From uh, all three uh, perspectives, yeah. it's not a good idea. To <laughs> stop there,
0: so for we're over three, Right, you're over three. Maybe maybe some dark triad motives are actually operating <laughs> underneath the fucking thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, it is precisely. And uh, and so yeah, so yeah, there's a threshold that's been crossed with social media and ubiquitous computation and handheld devices. And if you look at the screen time, especially among adolescents, it's like holy crap, like they're never not on a screen. Right. Uh, and so so yeah, we have to raise serious alarm bells about what it would mean if. Not just that Facebook's like undue influence, but that Facebook is Is. actually exercising undue influence. If we run that thought experiment, then there's a whole bunch of cascades that come from that. And some of them are legal because Mm. what it starts saying is that, like voting, for example, Hmm. the whole premise of voting is that you are choosing to vote Mm. because you've thought about it, because you're an informed citizen, Mm. and no one's holding a gun to your head. We're mm-hmm. putting you under situation right. of coercion right. or undue influence to make you vote a particular way. If we knew, which is why
0: it's private, right? You get in there because it's, a, you know, it's part of
1: the whole structure of right. Mm-hmm. And so, if we thought that there was a large percentage of the population who were voting because they were being coerced into voting that way, mm. we would think the, that the election didn't go well (laughs) right and so the argument facebook has already demonstrated by the way in a peer reviewed paper i think it was like in nature or something Hmm. that they were able to influence voter behavior through mechanisms that look a lot like the mechanisms we've been talking certain forms Hmm. of social signaling in conditions where you can't exit the social field without uh, basically taking down a notch in the justification system your social value right so uh, they showed that social influence in social networks affects voting behavior. Wow. So yeah, that's the first like, whoa, if it is the case. And again, this is a technical legal argument. So yep. Patty Hearst's trial, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Uh, I believe Lifton testified and others mm-hmm. testified. they were like, you can't hold Patty Hearst accountable mm-hmm. for robbing those banks because she was being forced to rob those banks. because She was in a situation of right. like influence. But if you look at the video footage of her robbing the bank, no one's holding a gun to her head at that moment. So totally. she's actually of you know, her own volition doing a bunch of innovative stuff that helps them rob the bank.
0: <laughs> What's the, uh, the, the, it's a hostage, when the person identifies with the hostage and blanking Stockholm syndrome.
1: Stockholm Syndrome. That's it's another example. That and thing. it's actually yeah, yeah. very common and mm-hmm. psychologists have studied this for a while right. for people to identify with their. Mm-hmm. Uh, kidnappers. or Kidnappers and things mm-hmm. of that nature. Um, and you can think of Stockholm Syndrome at a broad institutional level too, which is to say like, if you are in a situation of being a, a undue influence exerted on you by your own government,
0: mm-hmm.
1: where you're being forced to make certain decisions because you have no choice to but to make those decisions and you're being basically forced to think certain things because you don't have any other way to think those things. Uh, just like a hostage, you mm-hmm. will begin to basically sympathize mm-hmm. with the party that is so much stronger than you Yep. What else are you going to do? And so I believe that kind of a institutional level Stockholm syndrome mm-hmm. is one of the things that's induced by highly propagandized environments um, where basically you start to kind of like justify the bad behavior of right. your captors. Mm-hmm. Of course, they're going to lie a little bit. right? Of mm-hmm. course, they're going right. to start to coerce people to do these kinds of things. People should just mm-hmm. do the things. Yep. So you start to sympathize with the strategically acting third party who's manipulating you uh, totally. and basically then start to help them manipulate others. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then right. that starts to be the spread of horizontal propaganda, right. which is peer to peer spread propaganda where the thought terminating cliches that are created mm-hmm. and come down from centralized propaganda drop into the propaganda as and then spread through the social field. Uh, and social media, of course, allows that to happen drastically. Mm-hmm. So. The first thing to note is that we have some technologists who've created machines which they rent out to whoever the hell they want that is that are running interference between citizens and our government this is a question of uh national sovereignty with regards to like a private company uh that there's a company there's a company the services Uh of which uh-huh. services of this company are basically undermining our ability to uh-huh. have a democracy huh. so that's a full uh-huh. stop moment we were like whoa guys did like totally. a, a couple of rogue technologists basically get into a situation to begin to fundamentally undermine the American uh-huh. Republic and other countries totally. like first step It's also the case that market theory uh, is based on the idea of consumer choice behavior hmm. not being subject to coercion right, right. of course mm-hmm. so there's advertising to an extent but no one's holding a gun to your head and making you buy this kind of cereal right <laughs> uh, yep. there's many cereals with competing advertisements and the bigger bolder mm. company advertises better and there's so there's, this competition but if you begin to have a situation where large numbers of people are subject to undue influence in uh-huh. the realms of advertising and commodity uh-huh. things of that nature you actually start to undermine so-called free markets like very fundamentally well wow. could argue it had already kind of been that way because advertising was so uh-huh. intense this is a new right level where we're fundamentally dysregulating the basic principles on which we believe markets to operate yep uh, and so you have a social media company uh with a again kind of kind Of monopoly power over voting behavior and consumer behavior, <laughs> wow. uh, and so that, and again, so so, so
0: i mean, <clears throat> the apology there. Just said this is here's okay. So then the question is all right, here's what I'm hearing you say because you keep you, you know, things like the legal term of undue influence. So then there's the entire legal. Apparatus, right? That is regulating the justification of, of of the what's legitimate in all the various structures. And once it once it decides this is not okay, then all of a sudden it would bring legislative power in relationship to the, mm. you know, oh my God, you're polluting the entire, you know, information intellectual economy to control people in a particular way. Are people looking at legislating this, and/or are you trying to leverage this argument so that people bring legislative uh, considerations to whether or not this is okay. And how do you do that? And
1: all yeah, of that, is that it. in your ballpark or? It, I mean, this is one of the main things the Concilience Project is trying to do is to alert key people to large scale systemic risks. And this is one of the leading ones. Now here's where it gets tricky, which is that two things. One is that regulation of classic big corporate giants and their technologies has always looked like there's environmental damage happening maybe somewhere far away, or maybe it's nearby, but it's kind of invisible. And that Mm -hmm. environmental damage results in kind of human harm that we can Mm -hmm. see, like people getting sick and Mm -hmm. cancer or oil spills. And this industry is creating negative externalities in the minds of the people trying to do the regulating, right? Mm. So the the oil spills up here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm not laughing about that. What an image, right? But,
1: and it's and it's between us. And so what that means is, when you try to think about how could we regulate this, you realize that the people responsible for regulating are captured by the thing they're trying to regulate, and the thing they're trying to regulate is doing faster innovation. Like these are companies that are for profit. They're run with hierarchies and lots of controls, and they're innovating way faster then the government is able to legislate. Um, and again, the polarization uh, and the other kind of second-order side effects of what I've been describing on social media, which looks like polarization, increasing emotional and irrationality, the seeping of thought-terminating cliches into an 20- mm. Into actually. Improve. I love that term, by the way.
0: That's it's, new to it's me. A perfect. Term.
1: <laughs> and Lifton sums it up really well. I great. Uh, I got to find
0: that. Yeah, that's a perfect, in terms of sort of a dark applied justificatory theory. I'm, that's a really exciting yes, and that's thing for is. me to learn more about.
1: Yeah, and um, there's a lot to say there. But the, yeah, so that yeah. Uh, it's difficult to think of regulation as the solution when many of the people seeking to regulate it believe that the information environment has only been polluted on that one side because right. they've been polarized by the very dynamic they're trying to regulate. They've been polarized by it and believe that, well, the brainwash is only happening to one side.
0: Mm. Right. Cause, cause cause they're right. Right. I remember you talking we about are correct. Thing. As long as we're correct, then we can We're the them. correct
1: ones. So we're allowed to use the brainwashing machine. Right. 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 And that's, I mean, the fucking Trump supporters. They're just, it's crazy. <laughs> right. We're like
0: educated. Right. So now we, now we know what we're talking about.
1: Now right. Now you're hearing me. And so that's, <laughs> That's kind of where some of the, the conversations end up going when you think about regulation and the fear people have of regulation, because it could be just regulation means only one person controls the brainwashing machine at a time, which is how China runs it, by the yep. way. And they don't have mm-hmm. the problems of political polarization that we have, you know, and they're doing a bunch of other things to basically control these technologies, which can destroy countries mm-hmm. and uh, right. and and the power of governments and markets. Um, and so, yeah, the regulation play is tricky because Very. of the, um, the incompetence uh, and the incapacitation. Uh, but then also, the second factor of that—the uh, you—the you, wanting to capture the the brainwashing machine for yourself because mm-hmm. of your your own righteousness. So, no one wants the government to run the brainwashing machine, right? Uh, so, what it looks like is a need for something like a combination between the Manhattan Project and the Civilian Conservation Corps. Huh. Um, I don't know if you know That's about the civilian. Cons- I don't actually. No, can you sh- so the, enlighten me? So, the CCC, uh, the Civilian Conservation Corps, was a Depression era social works program. It was one of the <laughs> first large scale racially integrated programs in the United States. Interesting. History that got hundreds of thousands of men who would have been unemployed into camps where they were taught to read and they were mm. educated. And then they were reconstructing the social infrastructure, building dams, building the national parks. Really? Highways. Oh. So if you've been to a national park and you've seen like pavilions made and maybe a road up a mountain, like Mount Philo in Vermont, um, this was built by the, the CCC most likely. Wow, never heard And of. then they're sending checks home during mm-hmm. the Depression. Mm. Uh, so Public works program, also an educational program that's dedicated to rebuilding basic infrastructure that the country needs, uh, that employs massive numbers of the public who would otherwise not be being put to good use. Then you plug something like the Manhattan Project, which weds that to high technology, right. and you start to say, we don't need a top down regulation of social networks. We need a combination top down, bottom up. Kind of project Uh, for publicly redesigning the civic infrastructure, basically, with micro level, local level innovation. So that, like, you know, there's some kind of federal way we have Mm -hmm. a civic infrastructure. uh, And then there are also Mm -hmm. local levels, like Front Porch Forum here in Vermont Mm -hmm. is wonderful. It's a social network, but you register on there. You're like, I'm Zach Stein. I live at this address. Everyone uh-huh. knows who everyone else is. <laughs> everyone knows where everyone else lives. Uh-huh. And you talk uh-huh. about stuff that's happening in the town. And you never get batshit crazy stuff happening on there because you know <laughs> you know who everybody is. And you right. actually have a shared interest in your town. And no one from outside towns is like telling you what to do with your town. Wow. So it's not like we want to have some frightening... Centralized civic technology that's now given to us Mm -hmm. by the government. What we need to do is find a way to basically seed the creation of civic innovation. Of course, Mm -hmm. Uh, in a in basically a complex public works project like the CCC, Mm -hmm. but it had the more complicated things that we're not building national parks and stuff. Although we could use basic infrastructure, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, but that we're building basically would be coders. They'd all. it all be computer coders and user interface experts and pedagogues and civic discourse experts and other things to to build something that would actually, in a sense, nationalize the objective function of Facebook. Um, But it wouldn't put it in any like Hmm. political party's hands. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, And it would the whole thing would be visible because it would have been built publicly. Right. Uh, And, you know, Taiwan has a very interesting digital democracy, um, Hmm. which we write about on the Consilience Project. There's an article on Taiwan's digital democracy. um, And it was built in ways similar to this. um, Hmm. had government involvement, but massive, Mm -hmm. massive involvement of widespread public interest Mm. in the building of this thing. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it's been remarkably successful and stress-tested Wow. Under under the pandemic, huh. um, uh, so there are very real possibilities for the use of digital technologies to recreate educational and civic infrastructures. We just have not incentivized. Right. Uh, we've not incentivized innovation. We, in those directions. We've incentivized innovation to make money by capturing attention and selling your attention for profit to advertisers. That's the whole thrust of this whole thing is innovated along that line. Totally. If you shift the innovation structure. Uh, which of course is not a trivial thing. No. <laughs> it seems obvious that digital could be repurposed, totally. but you'd What's have that? a whole different class of en- <clears throat> a whole different class of engineer and a whole different type of, let's say, entrepreneur in a space that was innovating civic technologies. because um, again, you'd need people who were averse to engaging in undue influence. And this is because it's so interesting and why we need to talk about technologists and not just uh-huh. technologies. Huh. Right. We need to talk about technologists, right. like, right. who are the ones? Building right. Machines. Um, and if you talk about widespread, ubiquitous, low-grade psychopathology, uh-huh. Uh-huh. think about that spreading through whole corporate cultures. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, so yeah, there would need to be a re-incentivization of even the, and the ed, re-education of whole classes of innovative technologists who would hold a very different moral and ethical framework than the ones that now basically dominate uh, the citizens of many, many countries. That's the thing is like Facebook's got billions upon billions of users, more than any country that has ever existed. Mm. And so so they're doing this uh, internationally.
0: Yeah. So a couple of things there. I want to, uh, I definitely want to come back and dialogue a little bit about how do we know when we're doing education versus propaganda? Mm-hmm. Like if we're like, what are the core principles? But I also want to sort of double click on what you just said, because I keep coming back to this. Um, at least, you know, obviously people know me, I'm a theorist. Okay. So I'm not, I'm not out. I'm like, okay, what's actually in the ontological metaphysical structure. What do I see? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, one of the things that I keep coming back to over and over again is the in the fourth branch of the tree is called the influence matrix. Mm. Okay, uh, And when I first built it, uh, it's coming from an evolutionary social position, which basically influences a process and a resource. As a resource, the more influence you have, which is defined as the capacity to get others to um, invest in your you know resources as you know survival reproductive success status whatever okay so high influence versus low influence and from an evolutionary perspective all good okay but what you see then clinically as the world evolved uh, or as i then sort of like people are not just tracking their social influence okay and then there's so some examples that are really clear like a asshole boss he has a lot of social influence he can move people around but it's actually a contingent structure that if it change all of a sudden he's going to be out you know people hate him Okay. Um, and so there's issues like not just social influence, but it's like, well, are you valued by others? Okay. Uh, and indeed I then see individuals who actually then you're even valued, but they actually fake it. They put on a persona. So they're liked by other people, but they don't really feel known. Okay.
1: Um,
0: and that's in these clinical insights is actually, what is the most secure and soul fulfilling relational space is to actually be known and valued by important others, Mm. okay? That's actually, and when you're known and valued by important others, you're then at all sorts of levels, the soul is like, ah, (laughs) okay? Um, So what am I saying in relationship to, well, what we did with capitalism was we just went to straight manipulative influence, basically. We just created this fungible money system, and then we're going to grab as much of that, and it doesn't matter, and it's all means and instrumental manipulation. Mm-hmm. Okay, which is this social influence versus being known and valued. And we created this entire contingency about maximizing social influence at contingency level where individuals are essentially fungible and ruin known and valued. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And exactly. and so you know, well, that's a and so when we're <laughs> like, why
1: are fucking people starving? You know, it's like when this is exactly mm-hmm. right. Like, uh, and, so. uh, and this is exactly where social media came in yeah this is actually Sh- Sh- uh, susanna zuboff's uh, one of her arguments in surveillance capitalism is basically like that we had exactly what you describe unfolding like this process of every individual becoming non unique and becoming fungible and becoming alienated from other individuals and having power over stuff and power over people but not being valued and known. And like it was right as that was kind of peaking in the late '90s, <laughs> that social media kind of plugged into that soul deficit, basically. And there was a period you, you probably remember early in the internet when mm-hmm. it felt like, "Whoa, this was going to be the best thing ever totally. for us." Like it would solve all of those. Would connect us, and and and. But you know, exactly. and then so, and this is yeah. So psychological vulnerabilities make people, you know. Vulnerable to undue influence, so there was just mm-hmm. this like plug right in there, and so the sense of being known and valued is a lot of what social media stands as a proxy for. Yeah, but it's pseudo. It's the personal. social influence shallowness. It's empty
0: social yeah. calories that people. Yeah. Have. So, so then you were then describing about like, can we move towards an educational system to bring the technologies to actually shift from this. You know, contingent advertising influence shit to actually educate known and valued citizens. That's mm-hmm. what I heard you sort of uh, So there's the
1: me. yeah, the civic infrastructure is also an educational infrastructure, but they're they've got to be a little bit distinct. You know, sure. and so if you think about the incentive space for technological innovation and social media, and if you think about what if instead of building algorithms that optimized attention capture and micro-targetability, we built algorithms that optimized for learning. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, that would be crazy, right? And so instead of applying all the psychology we know about how to get people put into a trance-like state and make them susceptible to undue influence, we could apply all the psychology we know about how people learn <laughs> and healthy forms of self-regulation and screen use and a whole bunch of other stuff. What's interesting is that on my hypothesis, and I state this in my in my second book, and in, in, uh, like you have to read between the lines, but the idea is that if you do optimize social technologies for learning, you end up sending people away from screens a lot. You end up having the screen arranged for people to meet and do Mm -hmm. something that's not on the screen. (laughs) Uh, Because all the research shows that we actually learn best in social relationship with tactile objects. Who would have
0: thought (laughs) that
1: we actually are fucking primates? (laughs) Right, right. And so now there are some contexts where it's like, yeah, they, they know you're in a city in Massachusetts and the only other person who would have like a, quote, pop-up classroom with you, which is what I call them, right? Where the mm-hmm. screen has an algorithm, knows who wants to learn what and who can teach what and who has mm-hmm. what free time and what resources and then makes a pop-up classroom up here. Uh, that would be a learning-centric algorithm. Mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. An example of it. But if the only person in that pop-up classroom is, let's say, a thousand miles away, then you have a Zoom call, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but the broader point is that there's a whole space of innovation that's basically untapped, which is creation of, and what we're talking about is content curating and behavior modifying screen-based algorithms, right? Mm -hmm. So this is what it does. YouTube, it tells you what to look at next. It -hmm. tries to keep you on screen and it sells you advertisements. Facebook does the Mm -hmm. same thing. You could imagine the same idea. I have a screen. What's the next video it recommends? Right. Mm-hmm. What's the next recommendation, recommendation, or even in the architecture of the of the layout of the app? Uh, how does it keep me in, or does it prompt me to be aware that I'm on a screen mm. and move me out? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of things that could be built in to the backends
0: mm-hmm.
1: of, of existing uh, kind of internet resources that would mm-hmm. make basically education centric forms yeah. of digital technology. Uh, And so I think that's a huge like. Can
0: can you speak to some of what you when you use education, you know, uh, you speak to some of the principles that grant? I know you use that term very broadly and very deeply. um, And you speak. How do we know when we're doing education versus propaganda?
1: Yeah. Uh, So that that distinction is the place to start because we've been talking about propaganda and many people have the reaction of like, well, how else are you supposed to control large populations. Right. We just got to get them to think the right things, right? Isn't that education? Right. Mm-hmm. So so, they, so many mm-hmm. people who create effective propaganda actually believe that they're educators right. <laughs> and think that they're doing the right thing. So there's an important distinction. And so it's a couple of, one is that, um, education is a non-coercive relationship, and this is one of the problems, uh, with the way we think about public education. Um, that it is essentially coercive, uh, and many kids don't experience it that way, but those kids who do experience that they are being coerced into school, definitely are not learning Uh (laughs) after that experience. Uh Uh Um, And so I think about education, not just as terms of schooling. I think about education as a broad sociocultural function. Sometimes I I talk about, uh, you know, social autopoiesis or nice. What's the work, what's the work that the society and culture does to keep being itself yep. right? this is autopoiesis, the self-writing, mm-hmm. self-making. So education is through intergenerational transmission, mm-hmm. recreating the society and maintaining mm-hmm. it and innovating it. And that includes schooling, which is a kind of recent invention. If you mm-hmm. think about the you know hundreds of thousands of years of mm-hmm. human history, <laughs> when yep. we're doing education, schooling, family. Uh, yep. Fourth estate newspapers, mm-hmm. media, uh, and other things like legal structures, which are educational, just in the precedents that they set for human interaction. Um,
0: so I'll give, it, I'll give folks an example of what, and we'll see if the. So my yeah. mom is, I think, a world class educator, retired now, of course. Okay, um, but she are, started to get unbelievably alienated from an all sorts. She's a kindergarten teacher, okay? mm-hmm. and then there was just the influx of external reinforcement pressures. Give a sticker here, do this here. Everything good behavior is now gonna be secondarily regulated. And she's like, just bring them together and show them how to be good kids. That's what they wanna be. Right, and love them for that, and and then they create the environment so that they grow into that, rather than like coerce them so that they're good and get a sticker. Why don't? That's just insane. And and right. it was just listening to her and be like, um, oh, you know, why don't people get that? You know, it's was like, that's not that complicated, you know. And no, I mean, my mom's a very sophisticated thinker, but she was just sort of like, this is just insane. And it's sort of like, yeah, that's actually us behavioral psychologists being unbelievably. Idiotic and just Never not right. understanding human nature. So anyway, just throw that out there in terms of like this you're is not po- that complicated when you're embodied in
1: it, right? Do you apologize to your mom for
0: being behaviorist? Yes. Well, I, I'm not really a behaviorist. <laughs> <laughs> I do like behavior. You know that I like that. But no, but, the, but it's true that.
1: Uh-huh. The, certain forms of reductive psychology have overridden the complex considered judgments of great educators for a long time. That's a whole other story right? about the feminization of the field and the kind of deprofessionalization of teachers yep. and all of that. So I'm totally on your Like your mom is seeing it clearly, but it, it's, I mean, it's deep because it's, the, so I describe education, that huge sociocultural right. function. Modern societies have mostly relegated education to schooling and then tried to treat education like it was some other resource, uh, mm. like a factory type process. Yeah. So the first step is thinking all education happens in schools, mm. uh, and then the second step is treating education like something that it's not. Um, right. uh, and so, in any case, we've got to make productive citizens to get out there and influence
0: the world and make money,
1: right? Right. But the whole point is that you're you're taking what is like a free and open participation in culture and socialization processes. Mm-hmm. And free and open is a strong word because kids don't have a lot of freedom and choice. Right. right. But so that's a there's another conversation about kind of the nature of the teacherly authority dynamics at different ages and things. Right we can get into that but the broad point is that as you reduce it to schooling and then you reduce school to basically a coercive relationship you're you're undermining the legitimacy of teacherly authority mm-hmm. and creating you're investing in more complexity for schooling and getting less return <laughs> uh, because schooling is like what your mom is suggesting it's actually an opportunity to create context where real legitimate teacherly authority emerges. And the kids do what they do, not because they're being coerced, but because they want to, and because they have good reason to, because they've been reasoned with. <laughs> uh, and so, that, so education is non-coercive. That's the first but uh-huh. which uh-huh. specifically means not emotionally manipulative. So right. one of the problems you get into in the domain of propaganda is that you want to get a certain behavior to take place, you need to get a certain emotion to happen to get a certain behavior to take place. You need to give certain information to get an emotion to happen, to get a behavior to take place. If you're way more concerned about that behavior taking place than you are about the validity of that information, then you're emotionally manipulating someone because you're basically lying to them to get an mm-hmm. emotional response to get a behavior to take place. So that's a classic example of like, educators don't do that. Now, that yep. doesn't mean educators don't use emotion. Right, uh-huh. Like if you're talking to a kid oh. about lung cancer, the kid should be scared about getting lung cancer from smoking. Yep. but And you don't have to lie to the kid or exaggerate <laughs> facts or anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? So My um, uncle died from lung cancer. Yep. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. So it's like that. So that's emotion and education. But if you don't want the kid to do something and you don't really have a great reason, but you kind of – and then you kind of like make up some stuff to get him to be emotional so that he behaves – Uh, that's going to backfire in the long run (laughs) (laughs) Uh, because the kid's going to find out that you lied to him Uh, and you're going to get into a habit of basically being more concerned about getting the behavior outcome you want and getting the information transmission and education. That's important. And so this is the issue I have with like nudging, uh, which is that it basically tries to get behavioral conformity Mm -hmm. by avoiding actual education. Mm. (laughs) by creating choice architectures where they do the thinking for you and then present Mm -hmm. you with a choice that's basically a forced choice. Um, So education is not coercive. The second thing, education, uh, it's worth noting. What's worth noting first, the reason we're talking about education propaganda together Mm -hmm. is because as I say in one of the papers, education and uh, propaganda is like the evil twin of education. Mm -hmm. Like they're very similar Mm -hmm. (laughs) because often they Mm -hmm. both involve what I would call an epistemic asymmetry. Right, which means that there's one party that knows more and there's another party that knows less. Right, And they both know that they're in that situation. Uh Uh And so in an educational context, that's great. That's what you're looking for. The teacher knows more, the student knows less. The student knows that the teacher knows more. The teacher knows and the whole thing works because of a recognized epistemic asymmetry, Uh right? In an educational relationship, the goal of the teacher is to make that epistemic asymmetry obsolete, basically. To get to the elevate them mm-hmm. to elevate them to the teachers level mm-hmm.
0: and beyond
1: and beyond All right mm-hmm. <laughs> right so the educator is literally in a cooperative relationship mm-hmm. to eliminate the epistemic asymmetry that brought them together which mm-hmm. means that one sign of valid education valid teacherly authority is that you you can graduate right but it's not a relationship that is in perpetuity always epistemically asymmetric mm-hmm. right propaganda the propagandist, right? The propagandist does the opposite thing. Right. There's an epistemic, there's an asymmetry of knowledge and power, and both parties know that, but the propagandist has no intention of ever giving you all the information you would need to be at their level mm. of knowledge and power. Right. You can't graduate from a propaganda campaign. You can only Love then it. you can only be dropped into it and then propagated yourself to other people through horizontal propaganda which seems like graduating because now you're talking the party line Mm -hmm. you're not in a position to actually be able to justify the party line because there's an unbridgeable epistemic asymmetry and that bridging of the epistemic asymmetry is guarded against right totally Uh, and so that's that's powerful that's those are the worst propaganda environments and also the environments of uh, undue influence outside of propaganda, like cults and things where there's Mm. layers of knowledge and arcane wisdom. And you're not a Scientologist. (laughs) Scientology (laughs) is a great example (laughs) where you set Set up epistemic asymmetries and then make them unbridgeable Uh unless you do certain things. And even then at the end of the day, where are you going? (laughs) Like, uh, so, so that's worth noting that when you're looking at an, at an environment of information and you're looking at sender receiver dynamics and, right. you know, like authority or expert and non-expert dynamics. You want, to look, you want to look at how is that epistemic asymmetry being played? And is it the case that if you want to go all the way, <laughs> you can? Nice. Uh, and so this is, I think, one of the huh. big problems with contemporary public health campaigns is that pharmaceutical companies establish by virtue of their legal mandate as for-profit industries to keep certain data always behind closed doors. Right. Uh, uh-huh. And so what that means is that there is, in the very structure of this, an epistemic asymmetry that's unbridgeable. Uh-huh. And so that, therefore, anyone paying attention is gonna be like, mm. <laughs> like if, if, some, if everything's kosher here, <laughs> like, like, would you trust a teacher who is giving you advice to do something who wouldn't take responsibility for what happened when you did it and wouldn't give you all the information you needed to do it. You wouldn't trust that teacher. Right. Rightfully so. Uh-huh. And so, Rightfully so. So the idea is that if you want to create non-propagandized educational public health campaigns, then you need to remove barriers in place for around epistemic asymmetry. And, uh-huh. and in today's environments of data and public data and other things like that, I think there's no, ex- there's, there's not as much excuse <laughs> to do yeah. so again, except for the legal mandates that these companies have because they're for-profit companies, even though they're taking public money and interfering in public legal proceedings and things. But so, yeah,
0: well, so it's, it's a very common, did I ever tell you a suicide attempt or story that I went through in terms mm-hmm. of uh, no. so uh, just in terms of the dynamics of this, is everywhere and it's, and it's pervasive. What I, <clears throat> so I went, you know, God rest his soul Beck just passed away a couple, a month ago, uh, or so. Um, but that's in 1999, I went to work with him, uh, at the, as a suicide attempt project and, the, and it, they had submitted, uh, the pilot study, it gets funded by CDC and NIMH. Okay. Um, the they created this pilot study, uh, the people that actually created the pilot study then left they were basically postdocs and the psychiatric research evaluation center nurse who were our contact she just happened to get another job so i actually got in there um, and uh became the postdoc it gets funded because the pilot was a success and then i'm like okay greg you run this study okay and we're gonna give suicide and we're gonna give cognitive therapy and suicide attempt right okay Um, and that means that people have had to be identified as maybe a suicide attempt in inner city, Philadelphia. Okay. So then come into the study. I evaluate them, uh, and get them involved in the study and then send them, flip a coin, an electronic coin. And then they either get treatment as usual, or they go to the center for cognitive therapy for their treatment. Okay. Well, I mean, figuring this out was just an enormous complex shit show. Okay. Um, and finding where they were get, reestablishing, blah, blah, blah. So what happened at first was I had to solve the recruitment problem. So I had to find where these people were, or get them into the thing, which I figured out that if you knew where they look, it took me about three months. I then found where they actually were, figured out how to present the study to them, figured out how to get them in. Hmm. So we then ran a year study where half the people are signed to cognitive therapy. Half the people are treatment as usual. Okay. Hmm. These are, uh, one quarter of these people are homeless, okay? Three quarters of them make less than $15,000 a year, to give you an idea of the population we're dealing with here. Inner city, Western Philadelphia is the population. It's tough, okay? Well, what happened then was we have to then follow them up, okay? They have to go to uh, the high-rise Center for Cognitive Therapy at a particular time. Guess what happens? They don't go at all, okay? Okay. Uh, so we got 30 people assigned in the center for uh, for the go to the therapy condition. One third never show one third drop off be- between one and three sessions and three, what we call completers had four sessions. OK, right. one third. OK, so uh, we get to a year um, and actually Beck is, is not paying any attention. Then we have a year summary and I've been given him memos and we're actually at a public place where he's like, oh, show everybody what the numbers are. OK, and I was like, well, OK, <laughs> it's the most anxiety moment of my life. I get up in front of other people and I, I told him this. So he goes fucking ballistic. I mean, he just goes, yeah, what the hell? Because, you have, I mean, no one's coming. OK, so the whole thing goes insane. The entire, you know, like he yells at me, threatens me, my job. You know, basically, if you don't fix this, we're going to lose all your funding and you're gone. OK, in front of people, in front of 30 <laughs> people. Yeah. Okay. That's a white knuckle drive home. I have a kid and a kid on the way. And Beck just basically said, fix this fucking thing or else you're fired. Okay. So then we bring everybody together and we make all of these changes to the project. Okay. We bracket off what we call study one, and we basically institute all these social work issues. When I take over the therapy, we hire a few, we have money. We hire postdocs, uh, pre-doc, like uh, people to do evaluations. We hire one more postdoc that I train and we take all the therapy and guess what? I'll run out to people. I did therapy with a woman next to a crack house with a guard dog who stared at me the whole goddamn time. I mean, gunshots going off. I mean, and I'm doing it in earth room. Okay. It's not in confrontational therapy, <laughs> but the point is that I would drive down there because I needed to have this happen. Okay, right. we do p- tokens to get people there. We develop, we create an enriched care. So we'd be calling them. I learned how to translate. We basically did all this social work delivery of care to marginalized populations. Right. Okay, that was essentially all the. So then, what happened? We had actually worked. It's a fucking miracle. I would not think, but it, we had a we did actually have a reasonable design where we actually had randomized control. We didn't check data. We opened the data at the right place. I was like, this isn't going to work at all because I'm working with half the people. I'm like, this is how the hell do you help these people, right? It's a shit show, but boom, you break the seal, you look at the data, and we cut the number of days in the hospital in half, we cut the back depression indoors and half, the rates of suicide was down. It was actually the biggest impact relative to dose that I think really has been documented in the literature. Okay. So what happens in the app in the in the production of the this material? Cognitive therapy for suicide attempts. Okay. Not a goddamn word about any of all of the interventions, the social work interventions that we actually did. Why? Because it's a brand name promotion for Center for Cognitive Therapy. That's what he wants. Everything else is then seen as tweaks. Okay. if we had consulted with like a social worker, professor of social work, the whole thing would have been, well, it doesn't cognitive therapy doesn't work marginalized treatment structures and humanistic and people going out and actually delivering therapy and actually demonstrating they give a shit is that actually fucking works. Okay. And what they did is they buried all of that. I would talk about it in the context of when I presented in the, what shows up in JAMA, the journal of American medical is, uh, and, and to top it off, I'm now third off, or Greg Brown, who deserves to be first off because he did the grants and stuff. They then hired or or connected with the stat guy at the University of Pennsylvania, some full professor stat guy. And then they buried what was a very clear set of findings in stats I can barely read to make it sound unbelievably official and not a damn word about the difference between study one and study two in the Journal of American Medical Association. Okay, so that's psychotherapy. Okay, Zach, that's psychotherapy and in relationship to the complexities of the dynamics that you're actually dealing with. And we say this is the epistemic purity of fucking empirically supported treatments. I mean, give me a fucking break. It was outrageous. You know, it's just completely fucking corrupt. And believe me, I don't think the people that are doing psychiatric meds are going to be much more ethical in relationship to their epistemic purity. No, sorry, no one. sorry,
1: that was that's was what oh, I. Thank did. you for that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's an anyway, gang, it needs to say it got me pretty activated. Yeah, well, and that's uh, again, there's an absence of study of ethics and morality in our schools and things, so people don't understand actual, real uh, moral outrage, which is justified, which is different than pseudo moral outrage. <laughs> right, I think you're actually detecting soulful moral outrage. Exactly. So <laughs> I, I totally feel that, and it's in it's everywhere. And again, there's academic incentive structures that undermine teacherly authority, because you end up having to advertise for your kind of like unique niche, you yeah. more funding and get tenure. And so you, you sacrifice teacherly authority to some kind of advertisement dynamic, which you put your finger on, which is a form of coercive speech. And in advertising, you precisely don't have all the information <laughs> and you're precisely being told things in a certain way that make you, uh, where things are occluded from view. Whereas the educator is always trying to expand your view and not occlude things or occlude them in a sequence where eventually they're unfolded. (laughs) So yeah, you're right to see it everywhere. And then of course, if you get into outside of academia, into for-profit contexts like these social technology companies, we've been talking about pharmaceutical companies, all of that stuff, you're just like, it's very difficult to see how uh, anything like a legitimate form of expertise and teacherly authority could be put out from these From these organizations which so clearly are attempting to perpetuate their own existence and you know in almost every way they can so so it's it's, so like you're saying it's everywhere there's a deep um you know kind of coercive and manipulative communication i believe and this is a strong thing to say and then it leads to inevitably a conversation about ubiquitous psychopathology which is that manipulative and coercive communication i think is the predominant forms of communication uh-huh. in public spaces right now. Uh-huh. 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 Not in private spaces, although my guess would be that it's seeping uh-huh. in to private spaces. Sure. That when you're in a public space, uh-huh. the you know political speeches and school board meetings and social media and all these places that the predominant modality of exchange, especially from the larger players, uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, is manipulative and strategic. And then we, the smaller players, horizontally mimic their uh-huh. thought-terminating cliches and manipulative yep. r- framings of the data to make our point, even though we don't really know anything about the data. And so there's that way that, that's a very bad context of socialization. Totally. Right? So if if most of your interactions unfold in the context of manipulative and strategic interaction, mm-hmm. like your identity structures, like you're at war constantly, right? Totally. So, so, and, yes, and so we can it. say,
0: we can just look at the, uh, just translate that into affectivity. So in relationship to, um, when you get coherent, integrated flow from the body into the heart, head, spirit, whatever, the system feels comfortable and secure. Okay. There's a communication in a network, you know, you know, it's just a, it's a coherent, differentiated integration towards adaptive flexibility and you feel, ah, open, curious. Okay. And, and we're looking to explore when it's not your defensive anxiety ridden and intra-psychically conflicted. Oh my God, what do I say? What is this going to say? Everybody's manipulating everybody else and you get a closed down. And what is the fundamental predominant uh, uh, affectivity or emotion, <laughs> fucking academic emotion that you fucking feel as f- anxiety. Okay. And what have we seen skyrocket across the entire, you know, I mean, just, it took, it was anxiety, depression. Now, anxiety is just uh, yeah. Rampant in relationship to our, especially our young, but overall, I mean, we are just looking at an age of anxiety across the board.
1: Totally, and the predominant treatments there are are not good. So, so yeah, so that, so that, so it's deep. And so, you know, part of the Consilience Project, the four paper series on propaganda, is to kind of ring an alarm bell. That, right. Yes, propaganda has always existed. You know, yes, advertising, strategic manipulation, has always existed but we've crossed a certain threshold now with social media and digital technologies that we're playing a different ball game. And so I make the equivalence of like, you know, the atomic bomb uh, and certain forms of biological warfare are just treated differently than other weapons, like full stop. Like there were always weapons and there was always war. And then there was an arms race, and then we created this weapon that made it so that we had to kind of find a way to never use the weapon. Right. But there was this dynamic of mutually assured destruction and a whole bunch of other conversations. And the state of nuclear security is not good. (laughs) I'll say that. But the point is there was an international level conversation about a a weapon so amazing that we have to treat it differently. We can't just do what we've always done. And so the argument here is that mm, we're in a similar situation with informational warfare. That there's been an arms race unfolding for decades, and we just kind of cracked the atom, <laughs> and now we have weapons of mass destruction that are basically informational weapons and identity, yep. identity-creating weapons. Right. And so the argument is that we need to recognize that, we're, that we have to stop the culture war and the information war because now we have weapons so powerful we can destroy both sides in the conflict irrevocably, irreparably. Total. Uh, And so the broad idea is to just raise enough public awareness that people start to realize that this is not a trivial kind of like, oh, kids are addicted to screens. Kind of that's funny. This is much deeper. It's affecting the very structure of our ability to run the government and the economy. uh, And it's infecting, again, the justification systems of whole widely distributed communities so that there are languages of non-thought, if you will, languages of non-thought kind of running wild in the social media field. And then those end up getting articulated in actual speech. And then when that happens, you get conflict because both sides think the other side is speaking a language of non-thought. Right. And both sides are right. And so (laughs) so, so reason breaks down. And again, if you think you're the side that's not speaking the language of non-thought, but you're on a side. Yep. You're right. The they, they just look around. The strings are right behind you. Exactly. Just grab right here. <laughs> if, if you strongly identify with uh, one of the sides in the culture war, uh, like to the point of having to humanize the other side. Right. And believe that they're insane and irrational. Uh, and then you're stuck in this. And you are uh, a, a warrior. And it's, and it's not it's not like discrete categories. And it's it's not like it's if you use social media once, you're brainwashed. It. Of course. Mm-hmm. What I'm doing is making a model and showing possibilities. Yep. Not making strong claims, although I do think under some conditions, really heavy habitual use, I do think you get something that looks almost exactly like brainwashing, and it's and it's by design of the social yep. media companies. I mean, it's what they set out to do uh, was to just it completely enrapture you, and and I guess the 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 only saving grace is what I said is that if we were to reincentivize the use of these tools, we could literally be enraptured by digital technologies that made us the best possible people we could be like that's that's possible
0: that's, that's such a beautiful uh so for me the way i just i mean you're so much richer relationship to basically you know if you take just a schematic of the tree of knowledge okay uh and you basically apply basic logic to it you go obviously there's matter and then you have these jumps in the life minded culture right uh and i when i you know i had that stone night and i drew him out I like what the fuck. <laughs> And I was like, "There's something here." And for a long time, and then, you know, it took me about six months to a year to really be like, "Okay, what are those cones?" Okay, uh, and it's the simplest answer is that they're information processing communication networks that create these complex dynamic systems, basically. But the fundamental, the medium, connects the holes together in particular ways inside the uh, organism. You call that information processing between organism. Call it communication, and it creates a node network complex adaptive system. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then you get life. And then you do that. Oh, the nervous system is doing that. And animals are connecting, communicating. And then all of a sudden we're justifying. Okay. Uh, And connecting minds together. So your information processing, communication networks. All right. And you don't have to be, you know, more advanced than just formal operations to be like, well, life and did that mind did that culture did that. And that's one, two, three, is there a fourth? Right. Okay. Uh, And so then when that dawned on me, then it was like, Well, shit. Then you'd have another information processing communication network at a higher order organization, Mm -hmm. and is that happening? Mm -hmm. Fuck you, you know. And by you know, right at the turn of the 20th century, I'm like, Jesus, that's what we did in the last century. We laid down the network, right? And we're like jellyfish, but we haven't really synced together in our brain in a complex adaptive body. But this 21st century is that's what's going to happen. Okay, and then when that happens, it's going to create a whole nother op field of digital virtual reality. I mean, and then we're going to be interfacing with that in a totally fucking different way, you know? And then basically what I saw is exactly what you just laid out, which is sort of like, oh, my God, if we get a wisdom stack, okay, and stay grounded in nature, connected to each other, this affords an unbelievable opportunity. And at the same time, it was like when I first read George Orwell's 1984, I was like, you know, 18 or whatever. And I was kind of a skeptical reader always on you know, things were going okay in 1984, depending on what your frame is. And I was just sort of like, you know, and I was like, how the fuck would you actually go out there and get all those newspapers and suck them back up, you know, and then rewrite it. And I was like, that just wasn't, that wasn't believable to me. Okay. Well now, right. If we actually live in the digital metaverse and you actually have warlords that are regulating influence behind the scenes, Orwell is real. Or was totally fucking the potential for us then. I mean, I start get bitching about it and it controls it. Now all of a sudden I'm molest, uh, molesting a child and everybody sees it because you can just create any digital reality you want mm-hmm. in the digital world. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the dangers of this thing are outrageous, not to mention all the fluctuations. So it's called the I call it the digital identity problem. And then we have to figure out the, you know, and I use my coin for the orientation of the digital identity solution, which is fundamentally Shifting to the potential to cultivate a wisdom stack, as opposed yeah. to this
1: fucking yeah. take the top off us and turn us into goddamn robots. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. It's so interesting, right? You sound a little bit like T. R. Deschodan, or <laughs> well, forward, you know, I,
0: forward well, forward. I used to be a behavioral little sort of. I was like, well, man. it's like I just science modernist, and I was it's like, holy good. fuck, there's like shit behind here, Zach.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I I appreciate it. I mean, it's funny, like the, you know, Teliard's notion of the noosphere, Sure. Means a lot. And he actually got that in collaboration with a Russian cosmist, Vladimir Vlatsky. Heard of um, that, A lot yeah. about the uh, human mind as a geological force on mm-hmm. the planet, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, which is what you're speaking to. Like, on top of this layer of biology, which was already doing things to affect geology, you get this layer of Seemingly much more invisible, intangible, noetic control structures, um, which uh, let, uh, new uh, you know, like the noosphere is meant to represent. But and so when the internet emerged, there was that sense that this was the thing that would make the that would make the possible. Um, and so what's become interesting is like it has done it has uh, been captured basically. Yeah. This possibility has been, we've been kind of rerouted. Uh, and I think of the orb and no quote, which I repeat a lot, which is like, you know, the race towards planet. In the, in the final stages of planetization, there's a race between heaven and hell. You know? totally. And this That's is what kind of feel feeling is that it's exactly this moment when we have the ability to kind of actualize the, the total, the kind of total field effect of the emergence of mind. Uh, in the full sense, you're one totally big mind. mind. Yeah, big minds. Uh, right when we had that opportunity, the kind of like you know the geological force, if you will, of the mental could wipe it all out, or transform it into something much like almost unimaginably <laughs> uh, positive. Um, and so I don't, I don't know. Like, I, and that either or seems strong. I mean, my sense is that you know. A lot of human evolution, at least personally and in cultures, you know, comes from riding through very intense periods of, of tragedy. So my sense is that you know, I'm not predicting this thing gets any better quickly. No. Uh, the question is, what kinds of lessons can be learned in this context that don't inevitably just lead to the end of the whole experiment? Um, it's hard to fail in a safe way, with the level of infrastructure that we've created. Um, again, like if you have this much power to exert undue influence and you're running an information campaign, like a public health campaign, and you start to make significant mistakes, <laughs> those are now you've just, instead of affecting a small number of people in kind of a powerful way, you've affected a large number of people in a hugely powerful way. Uh, and so that's the equivalent of like an oil spill. Again, uh-huh. the information well, in the newosphere, it's an oil spill in the newosphere, <laughs> right? Um, and that pollution can last decades. right? Oh. Um, so we just don't have the right responsible people holding <sighs> the levers of power right. here. And, mm-hmm. they're not and we're right on
0: the cusp of heaven and hell at that point. Right. So this is why we have to wake conscious evolution and wake up. Man. Precisely. Right? Precisely. Yeah. So, and you guys at the Consilience Project are doing that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Feebly attempting to.
0: Well, you know, uh, we're all little fleas on the Titanic. Zach. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Keep that in mind.
1: (laughs) At least that's my imagery. Uh, Yeah, I mean, and and again, there's there's so many opportunities, as you're saying. Like, there's huge opportunities here. Um, You know, the increasing impending threat of existential risk, in particular, and I think the increasing strange virtualization and kind of uncanny valley of the internet. Yep is making the meaning crisis in particular and i think certain forms of religiosity are Uh going to have a massive revival because Uh there's in a sense like existential risk demands an answer that is at the level of the of the religious um, and the dehumanization we experience on the receiving end of undue influence by social media manipulation the resolution to that dehumanization is some kind of right. something, a counter, an antidote, which would be a rehumanization, and that comes from these types of uh, languages and practices. We
0: got to revitalize the human soul and spirit in the 21st century. That's the Correct. whole. That's right. you talking podcast. That's, <laughs> that's
1: exactly what we have to do. And so I think, like, as it gets, as the going gets tough, the awareness will grow, uh-huh. and the thirst will grow. And then the question is, what is available? uh and you know yeah so it's gonna be like a you know bucky fuller talking about the critical path you know like this narrow critical path through this period again of planetization and like exponential technologies and huge risk and huge possibility you know um so i hold out that future of that manhattan project and civilian conservation corps kind of like public redesign of civic and educational infrastructure as a very real possibility. Beautiful. Um, Beautiful. And it completely essential. And then I also hold out the possibility that people will just get sick of it. Yeah. Like they will, Mm -hmm. because that's the thing is like, if you were in a Chinese re-education camp during the Korean war, Mm -hmm. you couldn't leave. (laughs) Right. You cannot be on Facebook right? And I realize it's it's kind of like not sometimes appropriate to say that because there are some people who have business. There's some,
0: but obviously there's a lot more freedom in Facebook than in Chinese. There's a lot more freedom. And
1: I would argue even those people who believe they can't, Mm -hmm. it's actually in their interest to find a way. (laughs) Like this is is not a trivial problem. Uh, uh, So I hold out that possibility. And then, yeah, I think, so we have to basically work from where we are and the consilience project is trying to articulate this body of social theory that is like diagnostic diagnostically accurate about the current state of yep. affairs and then lays out certain kind of design principles as i was talking about the reincentivization of yes, yes world- that's crucial and things of that nature so we lay out design parameters for future possible civilizations which would use these advanced technologies in a way that created kind of a meta-stable Civilization, which is one that can adapt and change, as opposed to one that locks in harder yep. <laughs> on existing dysfunctional structure, uh, which is what we're looking at now. So that's that's the work that we're doing. But there's, but again, uh, so much work in the domain of education is mm-hmm. not theoretical, <laughs> but <laughs> as you as you experience in West Philadelphia, is doing the hard work of actually showing people that you care. Like this yep. becomes the scarcest commodity in a kind of like sacralized and dehumanized, deeply manipulative kind of world is someone showing up and doing that hard work of showing that you actually care and actually mm-hmm. caring. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so that is actually probably the main antidote, regardless of the yeah, theoretical totally. conversations.
0: No, I love that. And, and I think that that's, and I really, I mean, face-to-face, people do care. I try to emphasize, you know, people are, yes, they're, we're, I call us verbals at times, we can unbelievably selfish and, and aggressive, but we're unbelievably pro-social and care too, you know, and if you tap that in a particular way, it's enormous potential. So I, that's, I, I think that we've covered a huge amount of ground. I deeply appreciate. Um, I think that we're at this heaven and hell point. We got to consciously wake up uh, and make conciliant choices uh, in relationship to Education over propaganda, uh, and a whole host of other kinds of things uh, that you're leading the way on. So um, I uh, deeply appreciate it. Any other kind of final thoughts as we kind of wrap up or?
1: Well, thanks. So that was a lot of fun, Gary. Thank you. I'm happy to be back and to yeah. just kind of let my hair down and speak it out. Hey, ma'am. Well, th- this
0: is if, you know, basically my, that is exactly what I feel. Uh, and my little baton of energy is like, well, I'll do what I can to maximize likelihoods, heaven rather than fucking hell in the back of the 21st century seems reasonable to make <laughs> it to be better. oriented that way. Yes. Right? That, right. That doesn't seem like the craziest choice. It's like, yeah, you know, we'll take all
1: that. Three. <laughs> Utilitarian. <laughs> yeah. across analytical. all
0: actually value, you know, it's oriented not, towards hell is fucking not hell <laughs> is not All right. Well, uh, at that, Hey, we a bunch of academics get together and decide that hell is not preferable.
1: Take that home folks. You yeah, have <laughs> regressed to the medieval times. <laughs> All right, friend. Uh, great. Take care.
0: Yeah, man.